Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. We started last week, we just did a quick uh, intro to this topic of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is the Holy Spirit a person or an influence? We're going to get into that uh, more. We, we talked about this very briefly last week. But I want to hit on this idea of essentials and non-essentials and make sure that we're very clear about this concept of essentials and non-essentials as we go through this topic. Because as I alluded to a minute ago before we officially started class, the doctrine of pneumatology is a difficult one to address in a way that is comprehensive and in a way that is balanced because the doctrine of pneumatology tends to impact or have a play a role in all other doctrines and so uh, there is going to be a a fine uh, line of demarcation between what is essential and what is non-essential. So what I mean by this line and why it starts to affect other doctrines is we're going to talk about the essentials which are those things the Bible very clearly affirms about the Holy Spirit. But then when we start to get into the work of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit affects other things such as the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, the doctrine of sanctification, our growing into holiness in Christ's likeness, the uh, eschatology, the end times, in the way that the Holy Spirit uh, manifests itself, Himself today in uh, the gifts of the Spirit and signs and wonders and miracles, and the way that the gospel goes forth today. All of these things start to get into areas that, that would be considered what we would call non-essential. So what do I mean? An essential doctrine is a doctrine that you must affirm to be able to call yourself a Christian. There is a, there's a boundary line for Orthodox Christianity. And you're an American. Uh, you can do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. But if you fall outside of that boundary line, you are no longer a Christian. For instance, if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. If you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. If you deny that there is only one God, you are not a Christian. Does this this make sense? These are essentials. But there are many non-essentials in the faith. These non-essentials would be things like the method of baptism, whether you have to be immersed or you can be sprinkled. This is a non-essential doctrine. Is it something that people are passionate about? Absolutely. But does the way that you're baptized determine if you're going to heaven? Are you going to heaven because you were immersed? Are you not going to heaven if you weren't immersed, as an example? So these are a non-essential doctrine. Doctrines of eschatology, the end times. If you believe in a literal millennium, does that make you go to heaven? If you believe that there is not a literal millennium, are you not going to heaven? These are non-essentials. Does this make sense? And so, there are controversies within the body of Christ 
around a lot of aspects of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, such as the nature of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whether the gifts of the Spirit are still active today, or whether they have ceased. There is what is known as cessationism. They ceased with the apostolic age. Whether we believe one side of that or not doesn't determine if we're a Christian. Those are non-essentials. And there's a famous quote attributed to Augustine. He probably didn't say it, but people have said he said it so long that people think he said it. And the, the, the quote goes that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So in essentials, in those things that make us Christians, we must be unified as a body of Christ. In those things that are not essential, we have liberty to believe what we determine the scripture to reveal. And in all that we do, we must have charity. We must be loving towards one another. And it is sad to me, it is a tragedy that I'm sure breaks our Savior's heart, that, that Christians divide violently in some cases over non-essentials when we shouldn't have division in those areas. We should all be able to come together and worship around the essentials because, you know, it's like Sheila and I have this saying in our marriage. We, say, we always say, keep the main thing the main thing. Well, the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not going forward with the power that it, if we were unified and not dividing over non-essentials. So my goal, and you can hold me accountable to this, will be we're going to definitely go through and, and show you what the essentials are. But when we get into the non-essentials, I'm going to make it very clear. We're now talking about a non-essential. And I'm going to try to show what are the different aspects of the argument and what are the scriptural what's the scriptural basis for the different ways that people uh, take sides or the different sides people take on the argument. And then I'll share with you why I think we might be on one side or another while still making sure it's clear that's a non-essential and you can disagree. Does that make sense to you guys? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes? It just occurred to me it might be worth just talking about what does it look like for a biblical Christian to disagree on a non-essential? Like what should that look like versus what maybe we see it looking like? Mm -hmm. so yeah. Can I share a quick story that mm -hmm. kind of applies to that? Mm -hmm. When we first got married, we started going to her Episcopal church because she had not been baptized other as a child, so she couldn't go to Prestonwood, where I'd been a member. She could have gone, but she couldn't have joined. Well, I did join. Oh, yeah, you couldn't, couldn't do it the right way. But I, I was not baptized. So we ended up going to this Episcopal church. When we had our first child, I had to make yeah. a decision because I grew up Southern Baptist, and so the infant baptism thing was, you know, survey says. Um, but I decided to not just go with that, and I embarked on a year-long study of this thing. And it was, a, I felt like you for a second. I mean, I, I dealt with some stuff I'd never touched before. Mm -hmm. You know, really reading Calvin, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is tough stuff. Mm -hmm. But when I came to the end of it, it I realized, and that's why I wanted to give this example for the non-essential, that Calvin was basically arguing that this gave parents reassurance. And it's what we Baptists used to call the age of accountability. It was, it was one method of handling the concept of the age of accountability. If your baby dies young, they're going to go to heaven because they were baptized. You know, that was basically Calvin's argument as to why infant baptism could be important. And I was like, wow. And that's when the first time I realized that's just a non-essential interpretation of one aspect. It's not a deal breaker, you know. And 
for what it's worth, we ended up deciding not to baptize our children early. But it, but, it's, but it does seem like, you know, why do we have all these different denominations? A lot of it is over many of the non-essentials. Absolutely. Almost all of them are non-essential. <laughs> and people are very, very, uh, have very, very strong opinions. And that's okay. But we're losing the main thing, which is love. They shall know us by our love. So you ask, what does it look like? I think what it looks like is tons of grace and love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and a willingness to come to the scriptures together and be, have the Holy Spirit work in us and through us. Because I think one of the things that happens, like, you know, you mentioned the infant baptism thing. Most Protestants are shocked to learn that John Calvin thought that infant baptism was essential. Essential. They think, I thought, I thought being a Protestant meant you were anti-infant baptism. Most people, most Protestants are shocked to learn that John Calvin thought you could pray to Mary. I thought that was essential to not being a, to being a Protestant. And I'm only throwing this out there as examples because we have these things that we just think is the way they are. And on the other side, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not trying to pick on anyone. You know, there's, there's dispensationalists who've never heard there's an option other than dispensational. There's charismatics who've never heard the idea of, of cessation. Just allowing ourselves to be exposed to other aspects of theology and be open to the Holy Spirit operating through us. Because, we're, as we're about to find out, we are told the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into the truth. Yes? So clearly there's what is true and what is not true. Somebody's wrong, right? But it's pretty arrogant of us to think that we might just be the, like have a monopoly on what is true theologically. And again, as I've said, uh, you know, Todd and I've had this discussion many times, God operates through the body. He operates through the church. He operates through his people. So, yes. Especially if somebody says, I believe in Jesus, Everything, right? Yep. That, that part of the Bible, I don't think that's true. And that part hasn't worked for me. I don't think that's true. Well, okay. that would be a not that would be an essential doctrine of bibliology. You must affirm the scripture because the scripture is how we know what we know. And when you start to pick and choose, you start to uh, it it becomes a problem of well, why is that one the one that's true now, right? If, if, if Scripture itself is not, like the same process that affirmed this section of the Bible, affirmed this section of the Bible as canon, right? So that's a little bit of a doctrine of bibliology question, but it's a good question. But yes, you know, there's a, there's a famous group of liberal scholars, and I'm using the word liberal here, not in reference to anything political, but theologically, those who are considered liberal theologically are those who would be uh, less inclined to affirm what we would consider essential. Like they would be open to Jesus having just been a guy, for instance. Well, liberal, there was a group of liberal scholars, theological scholars, that became known as the Jesus Seminar. And what the Jesus Seminar did very famously in the 1990s was they met as a group and they put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on a screen and they went line by line through everything Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they voted on what he did or didn't say. And then they color-coded a version of the New Testament where 
it was, and I don't remember the colors, so forgive me, but it was something like this. If it was in red, he definitely said it. If it was in purple, he probably said it. If it was in gray, he might have said it. And, and so forth, too. He definitely didn't say it. They had it all the way down. And it was all based on just a vote. It's like, here's just some guy going, yeah, Jesus for sure said that. You know, majority rule. So uh, it's like, well, the, the same process by which we affirm that, you know, 1 John is canon. You can't go through John and say, well, uh, they got this one wrong then because you, you, you end up having to throw the entire thing out. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we have Bibles that are, have Jesus' words in red print. Mm -hmm. Is that us saying, like, he said it all? Yeah, so absolutely. So the, the red letter versions of the Bible, it's a good question. Just they're simply, it's just simply a nice editorial uh, um, uh, feature of the Bible so that you could quickly identify what were the letter, words of Christ. No, uh, totally unrelated. Okay. I'm just saying the, 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 the Jesus seminar would have taken all the red letters yeah. and they would have voted. And like, well, he kind of said this part, but not this part, you know, so that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, well, absolutely. You tend to find that experientialism is, is the guiding doctrine, right? It's like what I've experienced, what I like to be true, that's what I'm picking as true. Okay. Um, and I'll just tell you, like, I challenge myself all the time, and I'll just encourage you guys, you know, be willing to consider that which immediately doesn't make sense to you. Now, I'm not trying to make, put you in an air, area where you're in danger of, 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 of playing with error. That's not what I mean. I mean, within the realm of orthodoxy, you know, like he, like he gave a great example. I was willing to just consider why are there people who believe in infant baptism? Aren't they crazy people? Well, I'm going to study that. Oh, there is actually a biblical underpinning for that idea. Now, I may not believe that still that's what Scripture teaches, but now I at least don't think they're a crazy person, right? That's a charity. That's a showing love to your brother or sister that you're willing to consider their position before you just out of hand dismiss it. Does that make sense to you guys? Now, I also took our checklist that we put together last week, and I built it on here so that we can go through and every now and then just come back to it and uh, see how we're doing. So I want you all to know that everything we wrote on the board last week, we've got it in the checklist. Okay. So, first thing we got to do that's an essential. Scripture affirms the personhood of the Holy Spirit. We said last week that a lot of error is found in referring to the Holy Spirit as it. And there's this notion you'll hear, or maybe people don't even consciously think it, but somewhere in their subconscious, they feel like the Holy Spirit is like a force, like in Star Wars. You know, it's just this power source that's like emanating out of God, and I just need to get more of it, and, you know, it's going to do this, or it's going to do that. The Scripture affirms the Holy Spirit is actually a person. So let's just run through that. First of all, Scripture uses a personal pronoun in the masculine when referring to the Holy Spirit. And I just picked one example. When the Spirit of the truth comes, He will guide you, for He will not speak, but He will speak. He will also declare. Obviously, I cut out a lot of it. I'm just trying to emphasize that we have this use of a personal pronoun in the masculine whenever the Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture. The Holy Spirit does things that only people do. He speaks. Acts, Acts um, 
13.2, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. When the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify, that's speaking, about me. The Holy Spirit also has intelligence like a person. 1 Corinthians 2, 10-13. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The Holy Spirit has a mind. Romans 8.27 He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is able to teach. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdoms but those taught by the Spirit. He has emotions Ephesians 4.30, and I don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, or and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. One of our checklist items is we're going to get into this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit and blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, because there's lots of questions about that. We'll do that down the road. But what we can take away is that the Holy Spirit, like all people, has genuine emotions. And the Holy Spirit has a will. One and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as He wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. This comes at the very end of a passage that's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the very nature of the gifts that He gives, like wisdom and knowledge and faith, these are all things that are personal and that can only be distributed by a person to another person. The power of healing, prophesying, discerning spirits, speaking in tongues, etc. Uh, he is, the Holy Spirit in this whole passage is spoken of in strictly personal terms and uh, has personal agency in the way that he's going around and giving out these gifts to the various uh, members of the body of Christ. He directs people. Acts 16, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the Holy Spirit is saying, nope, don't go there. Don't go there. Yes, go there. So the Holy Spirit is giving direction. Again, only things that a person can do. That means life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not blaspheme. Holy Spirit and Spirit of Jesus. What's the purpose behind listing them in two different forms like that? I know the, tr the Trinity is three separate persons, but it almost sounds like 
Hmm? One was the Holy Spirit and one was Jesus. Yeah, so we're going to actually talk about that because that happens 16 times where the Holy Spirit is actually associated with a name of God, one of the other members of the Godhead. And it is one of the ways that we know that the Holy Spirit is equated with the other members of the Godhead is that we see them literally side by side like that. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. And it's just like these are synonymous terms. So we know that the Holy Spirit is deity. And when we get into the, we're talking about the personhood of, of the Holy Spirit now, we're going to get into the deity of the Holy Spirit next, and that's exactly where that, why that's done. So Spirit of Jesus is Holy Spirit. Correct. Okay. Yep. So, personhood. You know, all philosophers will tell you that personhood involves intelligence, feelings, and will. What did we just see? The Spirit in, uh, possesses intelligence, feeling, and will. So what's our conclusion? The Holy Spirit must be a person. Any questions about this? Is an intelligent beast a person? Like dogs are intelligent. They have do they have feelings? I don't know. I don't know that I don't know that dogs would be considered intelligent in the way that philosophically intelligence is discussed. You know, intelligence is the ability to do two plus two is four. Intelligence is the ability to go to solve a, an equation or solve a problem to, you know, create something like a poem or a symphony or... And not only that, but it's beyond more than just immediate recent memory. Yeah, exactly. In philosophy, it has to do with if you can have memories from way back and can retain those and they affect what you do in the future, that's a version of sentience that no animal exhibits. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's definitely the ability to connect multiple dots, right? And so memory is a part of that, right? It's like I can reason through a problem, and our experience, our lived experience, plays a role in our ability to reason through a problem. Um, some philosophers would say that animals don't ex contain any feeling. Now, I don't actually agree with that, but um, like your old earth creationists will say that God's not done something bad because if there was death between the beginning of earth and when we see the garden, they didn't really feel pain because animals don't feel pain. I don't know who's been around an animal that says they don't feel pain because I've been around a lot of animals. They feel pain. So, yeah, yeah. Just one of the many flaws in old earth creationism, but whatever. Anyway, so that's feelings problem. Okay. The part about will, we've had a, a, a bulldog that had more will than most of us. <laughs> you know? Come here. Just sit there and look at you. Yeah. I'll get there when I'm getting ready. Yeah. Okay. He guides, he hears, he speaks. John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He convicts of sin. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8. He performs miracles. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. He intercedes. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, Romans 8, 26. 
Okay, any questions about these things? He is basically doing the actions of a person. He guides, he hears, he speaks, he convicts, he performs miracles, he intercedes. An influence or a force couldn't do these things like a person. Good, good? Why not? Well, how could a, how could a force hear? Or how could a force speak? Or how could a force perform a miracle? How could a force? How could a force intercede? Well, we are talking about something supernatural, so we're saying this is agency. This is personhood, exactly. If you want to keep the Star Wars example, you know. The Jedi can hear a former dead Jedi in a Holy Spirit kind of way when he comes, you know, the blue image, you know. Yep. You know, you'll find out that many of the truths you hold most here. You know, but that's that Jedi using that force to give that message. That is not the force itself. Correct. As a person. Correct. Going, Luke. You know, it's Ben Kenobi speaking to Luke. Well, one, one, like you just said, Mike, one is causal. One is the agent that's doing the thing. In the force example, the force is what's being utilized. It's like a tool that's being picked up. The agent is the human. And by the way, that's where lots of flawed theology comes in, is people want to pick up the Holy Spirit like it's a tool and wield him. And they refer to the Holy Spirit in that way. The Holy Spirit is not to be wielded by you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is God, as we're going to see. The Holy Spirit is a person who is active, an agent in the universe. He, he was active in the creation process. He is active in our salvation process. He is active in our sanctification process. And if we, I think the word utilize, use, mm -hmm. if we're thinking of it as something that we can... Mm -hmm. That we give it the will, that we give it the, the desire to do something that wouldn't. Yeah. Then that's where we're off. Our goal is to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. To be a vessel and a tool for the Holy Spirit, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think one of the biblical examples that, that shows that mm -hmm. and the correction of it is when uh, the. I think his name was Simon the sorcerer comes to them and is like, hey, I want this power too. Can you show me how to cast these, you know, whatever yeah. it is. I want to be able to do that. We're, we're going to get to that exact example. That's very good, Matt. Very, very good. Okay. The Holy Spirit is obeyed. Acts 10. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? He can be lied to, which you can't lie to a force, right? To just, a, just a, this invisible whatever. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and keep back part of the proceeds of the land. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. This is a challenge for some of our theological brothers. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did 
you do also. He can be blasphemed. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Can you talk a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, so we plan, on, we plan on doing a deep dive on this later. But here's the thing I'll tell you. First of all, if you're worried about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, like have I done it, you haven't. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the big takeaway for you, okay? This is a, this is a thorny scripture. It's one that's been discussed for 2,000 years, but it essentially is attributing to the work of the Holy uh, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan or to demonic forces. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And it is a very it would it's a very purposeful thing that you're doing. You're knowing it's knowing it's God and attributing it to Satan. For, for your own reasons, for selfish reasons. Can you give it well, I really don't want to, but uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, no, I, I don't know, like, let, well, just take what happened with Christ. When Christ heals the, per, the paralytic and the Pharisees know that God just did a miracle, it would be because the Pharisees don't want their power to be diminished, it would be saying, look, Satan's healing these people so that Satan can get more followers. Knowing it's God at work. That would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. My question here is why is blasphemy an example that the Spirit is a person? Well, because you can't, to blaspheme is to harm someone. It's to impugn their character, essentially. Oh, thanks. Good. It's to, you know, um, I don't know, like if, if, if I, they say George Washington could not tell a lie. I could go tell you some story that George Washington was a liar. We could say I'm blaspheming George Washington. I'm diminishing his character. So when you stub your foot on the side of a couch or something and say GD on accident, <laughs> that's not... Yeah, well, that's diminishing char yeah, God's yeah. character because that's that's turning. I mean, would you use your mother's name as a curse word? Yeah. Why? Because you think that she's worthy of respect, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we don't we don't use the Lord's name as a curse word because it's diminishing who He is, His rightful place. Yes, ma'am. I think it should be said that the Holy Spirit is a person, but He is not a human person. Correct, one hundred percent. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He is God. And we will cover that in detail. He can be insulted. Hebrews 10.29. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is from the great warning passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that speaks of apostasy. There's two of them. All of Hebrews, most of Hebrews 6 and all of Hebrews 10 discuss this idea that one who has already been saved and then rejects Christ, that their punishment will be even worse because they now have had the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when now they for sure know the truth, if they're turning their back on Christ, what an insult to the Holy Spirit, which was given to them to lead them into the truth. So these are, yes, ma'am. Uh, the list for the Spirit of 
The what? Mm, yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah. Yep. So, these are ascriptions that are only due to a person. You can obey him, you can lie to him, you can resist him, you can grieve him, you can blaspheme him, you can insult him. Not possible to interact with an influence in this way. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.